Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from Winter Sports in Switzerland by E.F. Benson. It was published in 1913. It looks at the journey from England to the Swiss Alps in a time that did not have the ease of access that we have now. It looks at the thoughts of a traveller that makes the long journey to see the snow in a country that is very foreign to them. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. I bring this podcast to you to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. If you enjoy falling asleep to this podcast and would be so kind, please take a quick moment to leave a review and rating in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. It really does help me reach more people who need a good night's rest. You're always welcome to say hello or support the podcast at boreyoutosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Winter Sports in Switzerland, Chapter 1 There is an amazingly silly proverb which quite mistakenly tells us that seeing is believing. The most ordinary conjurer at a village entertainment will prove the falsity of this saying. For who has not seen one of these plausible mountbanks put a watch into a top hat and after clearly smashing it into a thousand pieces with a pestle stir up the disintegrated fragments with a spoon and produce an omelette? Or who is so unacquainted with the affairs of the village schoolroom at Christmas, as not to have seen a solid billiard ball or a lively canary squeezed out of the side of a friend's head. Such phenomena are by no means rare and occur periodically all over England. The observer's eyes have told him that he has seen such things, and the verb to see is merely a compendious expression to indicate that on the evidence of your eyes such or such a phenomenon has actually occurred. But no one believes that the disintegrated watch has become an omelette though ocular evidence seeing insists that it has. It was a conjuring trick and this leads me to the consideration of the phenomena on which this whole book is based. For high alpine resorts in winter are a conjuring trick of a glorious and luminous kind. Our common sense, based on experience, 
tells us that ice is cold but is melted by heat, and that snow is wet, and that unless you put on a great coat when the thermometer registers frost, you will feel chilly, and that if you frequently fall down in the snow, you will be wet through, and if you do not change your clothes, when you return home, you will catch a cold. All these things are quite obvious, and he who does not grant them as premises to whatever conclusion we may happen to base on them is clearly not to be argued with, but soothed and comforted like a child or taken care of like a lunatic. But high alpine winter resorts give, apparently, ocular disproof of all these obvious statements, and those who go out to these delectable altitudes in favourable seasons see, every day and all day, the exact opposite of these primitively simple prepositions regularly and continually taking place. They sit in the sun when they are tired of skating and see that though a torrid luminary beats down on the frozen surface, burning and browning the faces of their friends, the ice remains perfectly dry and unmelted. They trudge through the snow and find that they are not wet. They see the thermometer marking anything up or down to 30 degrees of frost and go out coatless and very likely hatless and are conscious only of an agreeable and bracing warmth. They go skiing and all day are smothered in snow and yet return dry and warm and comfortable to their hotels and do not catch any cold, whatever. Shakespeare once made an illusion of some kind. I cannot look all through his plays to find it, about hot ice, meaning to employ a nonsensical expression. But it is the most striking testimonial to the magnificence of his brain, that all he ever wrote meant something, although, as in this instance, he designed it not to. For without doubt, he was alluding to what appears to occur at St. Moritz or Marin. But it is all a conjuring trick, or so these altitudinous are deposed to think, that when they return home to the dispiriting chills of a normal February in England and find that when the thermometer marks 45 degrees or thereabouts, they shiver disconsolately in the clemming cold. Even when they were out in Switzerland, they found that they hardly believed what appeared to be happening, for they found that if the weather changed 
and instead of the windless calm, or a light north wind, the fond wind blew from the southeast, warm and enervating, then in proportion, as the thermometer mounted, they felt increasingly cold. All these things, though, they thought they saw and felt them, were of the nature of a conjuring trick, and they never, after their return to the lowlands, really believed them. It was obviously impossible that they could have felt warm and dry after being rolled in the snow. It must have been an illusion, capable of immediate disproof, if they now went out without a coat or sat down on a snowy London pavement. A pleasant illusion, no doubt, but clearly an illusion. It was like the omelette emerging from the top hat into which a watch had only a moment before been placed and pestled. And if those who think they have experienced these phenomena, which so clearly contradict the most elementary laws of nature, cannot fully believe in them when they re-enter the chilly spring of England, still less do those who have not experienced them find it possible even them to simulate credulity when the foolish alpinist recounts them. I rather fancy that people who have never been to the high altitudes in winter believe that all those who say they have done so and come back and tell their friends that sun does not melt ice and that snow is dry and that 10 degrees of frost is an agreeable temperature to stroll about in without a coat are in some sort of inexplicable conspiracy. But the conspiracy is so widely spread now and is still spreading so fast that one's remarks on the subject are received with politeness nowadays, though still with incredulity. Some strange wandering of the wits has taken possession of the conspirators who are otherwise harmless, and such is the force with which their illusion holds them, and so anxious are they that credence should be given to it, that they employ some sort of skinned eye to add completeness to their strange tales, and appear with brown hands and faces when they come back to the anemic metropolis. They are clearly the victims of some obscure but infectious derangement of the brain of which the chief symptoms are those strange illusions and an immense appetite. And as I have said, the victims of these illusions, before they have spent many days in England, are already themselves wondering whether all these things were so, or whether they were but the fabric of a pleasing dream.
but they make plans to dream again about the middle of the ensuing autumn and for the most part find that the vision is recapturable. It is all great nonsense, but if you take a suitable ticket at a suitable time of the year and go where that ticket will allow you, the nonsense is found to be recurrent. I do not know whether ice and snow and all the forms of the radiant frost, as Shelley calls it, are in themselves more beautiful than the spectacle to which we are accustomed of an unfrozen world, or whether it is merely because we are unused to the gleams and sparkle of these whitenesses that we find them so entrancingly lovely. It would be interesting, for instance, to ascertain whether an Esquimo or other dweller in the Arctics accustomed to ice would go into the ecstasies of admiration at the sight, shall we say, of Hyde Park Corner on a moist, warm day of September, when the roadway is swimming in a thick brown soup of mud and gusps of tepid rain stream on the wind-swept lampposts, thus supporting the idea that it is to the novelty of the spectacle that the arousing of our appreciation is due. Certainly, it would be hard to say that anything in the world is more beautiful than a beech tree in spring, or a crimson rambler in full flower, or glimpses of the Mediterranean in a frame of grey-green olive trees, and I am inclined to believe that it is partly the contrast which a sunny morning in winter among the high Alps presents to all that a Londoner has known or dreamed of a third o that partly accounts for the ineffable impressions it never fails in producing on him. And to that we must add the exhilarating and invigorating effect of the still dry air and the sun that all day pours pectolis over the gleaming fields. In such an air and in such a flood of light all our senses and perceptions are quickened. The vitality of our organs is increased, and with the wonderful feeling of bien autre which the conditions give, our appreciation is kindled too. I always feel that it must have been on a frosty morning that David said, I opened my mouth and drew in my breath, and perhaps on that day the cedars of Lebanon were covered with the crystals of hoarfrost, and below the snowy uplands the dim blue of the sea slept in sapphirand at the bases of the shining cliffs. I lick the chops of memory and go back in thought to the middle of December when having previously determined not to go abroad until January, 
I hurriedly fly the country, like a criminal seeking to escape from the justice that is hot on the heels of a murderer. In such wise do I fly from my conscience. Conscience, I may remark, is one of the things that everybody leaves behind when he goes to the high Alps. Apparently it and other poisonous organisms, such as the bacillus of tuberculosis, cannot exist in those altitudes. While below my breath, I again register the frequently broken vow that I will be at home again by the middle of January at the latest. For indeed it seems impossible to tolerate London any longer just now. The fogs have begun. These are the excuses with which I seek to stay the protests of conscience before I fly from it. And for three days last week, we lived in a thick and ominous twilight of dusky orange, tasting heavily of soot and sulfurous products. At intervals of copper-coloured plate showed itself above the house roofs, and, oh, to think that this means metallic circle was indeed none other than the hot radiant giant that in the happier climes was rejoicing to run his course across the turquoise expanse of cloudless sky, that this remote and meaningless object was the same that sparkled on dazzling peak and precipice and turned the untrodden snows of sheets of diamond dust. Then, after three days of stage and gloom, the fog was dispersed by a shrewd and shrill north wind, and for a whole morning snow fell heavily, which, as it touched the pavements and roadways of town, more than usually befouled by the fog, turned into a base and degrading substance resembling melting coffee ice, the streets swam in the icy treacle of it, and motor buses and other ponderous vehicles cast undesired helpings of it at the legs of foot passengers. After the dispiriting day, the weather changed, and a tepid southwesterly gale squealed through the streets. This was too much. I bought a quantity of what is known as sermon paper, and two new stylographs, which was another sop to conscience, and implied the intention of working out in Switzerland, and made a few hasty and craven arrangements on the telephone, and slid out of Charing Cross Station at 2.20pm precisely the next day, leaving conscience like an abandoned wife, sobbing on the platform. Now while journeys, whether on land or sea, are apt to be but tiresome businesses when they are undertaken at the call of some tedious errand, they are vastly different affairs 
when they conduct the traveller to joyful places and delectable pursuits. They are coloured by that which awaits him at the end of them, like the sweetness of sugar permeating tea, and this particular progress is to me full of romantic happenings. Dusk is already closing in before I reach the coast, and as the train halts on the hill above Folkestone, before being towed backwards down to the harbour, I can see the lights beginning to twinkle in the town and along the pier, which is surrounded by the great grey immensity of the wave-flecked sea. A fine rain is falling dismally, and I hurry across the slippery quay as I am weighed down by an enormous great coat, the pockets of which, I am sorry to say, are salted by various packets of cigarettes, which is why I wear it, and I stagger under the weight of a suitcase, sooner than part with which I would die. For the French or Swiss railway companies often, no doubt with humorous intent, arrange that the traveller's large luggage shall not arrive for twenty-four hours or so, after he has got to his destination, and in less experienced years I have packed my boots and skates in these detained trunks, and have been obliged to wait on savage inaction till the railway company has come to the end of its joke just as one waits for the end of a long, funny story. Not so now. My inseparable bag contains my large and cumbrous skate-shod boots as a first charge, and after they have been stowed, the mere necessities of life, like clothes and dressing case, as opposed to its joys, fill the rest. Even in the harbour, the steamer sways with the backwash of the heavy seas outside, and the mooring ropes squeak and strain to its unease. I stick in the narrow gangplank that conducts its precipitous incline to the deck. At least the corner of my suitcase does, which is part of my identity. A faint and awful smell of red plush sofas and cold beef comes up the stairs, leading to the saloon. The tarpaulins rigged up along the open passage between the decks, flap uneasily, and are buffeted by the rain-soaked wind, and sailors hurry about with white japanned tin objects in their hands. All this sounds dismal and dispiriting enough, but such incidents, I repeat, take their colour from that to which they lead the traveller, and when bound for Switzerland, they are all haloed in a vague, pleasurable sense of excitement and romance. We put out on the turbulent and windy sea, and as we round the end of the pier, 
the whole boat shivers as a great white-headed wave strikes her. It is cold and wet on the back, but I have to linger there while the cliffs of my beloved native land vanish into the grey of the swift oncoming night and feel a perfect glow of enthusiasm at the idea of not setting eyes on them again for another month or so. And already I am beginning to be doubtful whether I really made a vow to be back by the middle of January. I pass rows of silent figures with closed eyes reclining on deck chairs in the more sheltered corners. Then the whole ship makes a scooping curtsy into the trough of a wave, and the water pours sonorously onto the deck. Shrill whistles the wind in the rigging, and a raucous steam siren proclaims to the old traffic in the channel that we are off to Switzerland to skate, having left our conscience at the white cliffs of England behind us, and not caring two straws at this delightful moment as to whether we ever see any of them again. I love the landing on the friendly shores of France, the waiting while the ship is reluctantly coaxed sidling up to the pier, the hustle to get through the custom house and enter the warm, well-lit train. The foreign tongue is delightful to hear, so too the eye, the blue-bloused porters, and the unplatformed station where the huge carriages tower high above one, emitting mysterious jets of steam. All is strange and new and delightful. The engine of unaccustomed build and outlandish voice, the grey upholstered compartments with their hot carpeted floors, the restaurant car with bottle-filled racks, where presently I sit, part of a moving pageant of eating and drinking as we shriek through stations and scour with ever-increasing velocity through the darkness of a stormy night. At Leon, mysterious jugglings take place. Another string of carriages is slowly shunted on to our train to the accompaniment of many cries of warning and encouragement of waving of lanterns, and the buffers come home with a soft thud. We cast off our tail, lizard-like, which is hauled away to travel divergently to Basel, and soon we are thundering on again by the more direct route to Bern. At some timeless hour, a long halt is made, and compartment doors are flung open, and the sonorous proclamation of the arrival of Les Messieurs de la Dune enter Les Messieurs, and at their sesame bags fly open, 
and with strange staves they explore the hidden recesses under their seats. In their nightly search for laces and spirits and cigarettes and all the contraband of peace. Soon this complimentary visit is over. The green shades are adjusted again over the lamps and the vibration and rhythm of the racing wheels mingle and blend themselves into the blurred edges of dream. I do not wake until we are actually slowing down to enter Bern, that city just so famous for its bears, its president of this delectable republic, and its terrace from which the eager tourist vainly scans the impenetrable clouds which invariably scream from his view of all possible glimpses of the mountains of the Oberland. Whenever I arrive at Bern, it is always a grey chilly morning, just above freezing point, so that the icy sheets are half slush. At first, this used to depress me with ominous forebodings of a thaw at the higher altitudes. Now I know that all the winter through it has always just thawing at burn, and that the sky there always is heavily beclouded. I think a sunny, frosty morning there would cause me some considerable anxiety, for it would imply a complete upset of climatic conditions, and midsummer might be expected to hold its abhorred sway on the heights. So in perfect equanimity, I climb back again into our train, heated to the temperature of the second hottest room in a Turkish bath, and we jog in more leisurely fashion through the half-frozen villages towards the lake of Tun. These villages are mainly composed of houses taken from the larger-sized boxes of toys, with stones fastened down on their wood shingle eaves to prevent their roofs blowing away, and with staircases clearly built for ornament and completely unpracticable, climbing up the outside of their walls. Stations and banks and hotels seem to be constructed with a view to moderate permanence. The rest are clearly so made that they can be taken up and planted down somewhere else. Then, as we emerge onto the edges of the lake, higher hills begin to tower across its steely grey levels, and rifts in the clouds that shroud their heads and hunched their shoulders show glimpses of sun that shine on the whiteness of the snow. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy. If you're not drowsy yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. Until next time, good night.